Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 5 this morning. If like me, you grew up in a Christian home, going to church as a child, uh, perhaps this passage will remind you of the old song, I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. And it grew up singing from a very young age. And this is Luke's edition of that, of that story in Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. And just to summarize again, if you haven't been here for a few weeks, what's been happening in the passage leading up to this. Uh, the beginning of chapter 4 records Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and him going out in the power of the Spirit and resisting all temptation that came his way. And then he went into a synagogue and preached a sermon. And it was what we might call a, a kind of typical sermon of Jesus, showing us what his ministry was like as he went from village to village and town to town, uh, preaching God's word and saying, I am the fulfillment of these passages in the Old Testament. I am the Messiah. And we see him doing miracles then following that sermon, uh, casting out demons, raising sick people. And we see another miracle today as part of Jesus calling people to follow hard after him. So this passage describes how Jesus calls people to his work and the kind of person Jesus uses to do his work and the kind of work he calls them to do. So please follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. A couple times over the recent years, I've read a book called Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Joy, I believe is the subtitle. Let me double check that part there. The Surprising Path to Living Hope. Sorry. And uh, this book is uh, very reminiscent of the series we preached on Ecclesiastes recently. But as I uh, thought back on this book, I realized there was great uh, connection to the passage we're looking at today. And what this man, Matthew McCullough, who's a pastor in Nashville, describes at one point in the book is how uh, he watched his maternal grandfather, so his mom's dad, go through the slow, long process of dying. And as part of some of the physical needs that, that he experienced, they had to, to uh, set up a hospital bed in uh, his office, which was the, the best room on the first floor of their home, for him to, to, uh, to you know, be on one level throughout the rest of his life at this point. 
And so he talks about how this was the most, how this man was one of the most accomplished and well-regarded men I have known. He built a thriving career as a business executive, served for a time in state government, and worked off and on for years, developing the business community of the small town where he lived. So far as I knew, he was loved and respected by most of those who knew him. He enjoyed some measure of power, and he had a status many men aspire to reach. Then he goes on and says, uh, after his, his uh, health had sharply declined, a hospice company took charge of his care. They placed him in a hospital bed, one of those metal ones with the droppable railing. This bed needed to be on the ground floor of his home to make things accessible, so they placed the bed in my grandfather's office. The bed sat next to a wall that was covered, nearly floor to ceiling, by plaques given to recognize his accomplishments and his service in the community. My grandfather died in that bed, underneath those monuments to a life more celebrated than most. But he went on to describe how, at, at best, this is the sentence that, that really captures this for me. He says, at best, anything we accomplish, anything we enjoy, anything we acquire, amounts to nothing more than roofs and walls made of tissue paper. They will never protect us from the storm that's coming. The lives that we build, the accomplishments we uh, enjoy, will never amount to anything more than walls and roofs made of tissue paper. In other words, as soon as it starts to rain, it all dissolves around you. It's good for nothing. And when I think about that, that passage of this book with relation to this passage that we've just read from Luke chapter 5, I think about the way that many of us throw our lives into gathering those plaques, covering our walls with certificates, covering our shelves with trophies that one day we will die next to. And when we die next to them, they become utterly worthless to us. They don't add any kind of incentive to our eternal destiny. They don't provide us with any more joy because we are dead. And those plaques, as he describes in this chapter here, eventually get turned into firewood or some other uh, purpose. The passage before us today actually doesn't talk about death at all unless you think about the fish that these people were catching. Uh, But it does, so it, it may seem strange, I guess, to say to talk about death in this context. But the Lord gave this passage to us, I think, to expose us to the reality that we often use our lives merely for our own gains, merely for what will get us through from one day to the next and maybe leave a lasting legacy for those behind us. But Jesus calls us to leave those missions behind, at least as the ultimate purpose of our lives, and actually throw ourselves into his mission, throw ourselves into what he has come to do, into what he uh, has sought to accomplish. His mission was to gather sinners. And so rather than finding our significance in temporal identities, in this passage, like being a fisherman, In our day, like being a fireman or a police officer or a pastor or any number of other priorities in our lives, this passage tells us that Jesus the Messiah came to gather sinners. And he calls you to join into that mission, to follow him with your whole life and participate in what he has come to do. So he he calls us to participate in his mission as part of following after him. In verses 1 through 3 in this passage that we've just read, we see the setting of this story. Jesus gets in a boat. The crowd is leaning in on him, and he wants to get some breathing room between him and the crowd. They're they're pressing in on him, 
And we don't know, obviously, from this passage how big this crowd uh, is, but I think we're getting the impression as we work from one passage to the next that the number of people who are interested in what he's doing and tuning in to what he's saying is getting bigger and bigger. You know, if it we're talking about a ratings perspective, his ratings keep getting higher and higher. People are more and more interested in what he's saying and doing because they're hearing about the kind of miracles he's performing as he goes from one place to the next. And so they, they hear about him healing people who are on death's door and casting out demons from people who perhaps have been possessed for months or years and it's ruined their lives and now they're walking around like sane, normal people all because of the ministry of Jesus. And so the crowd's getting bigger, and here he is walking along the edge of the sea, the Sea of Galilee, called by a different name here, but it's the Sea of Galilee. And in order to even have some breathing room between him and the people who are leaning in against him to hear what he has to say, he gets into a boat and decides to push off a little bit and go out into the water a little bit so that he has a little bit of space and more people then can hear him. And so... <clears throat> We, we see him that they're here listening so that they can hear the word of God, which is just a beautiful statement. What perhaps do you think they were hearing when Jesus was preaching to them? Perhaps he was going back to that passage in Isaiah 61 that he had preached in the synagogue and saying, this passage is fulfilled in me. Perhaps he's walking through the story of the Old Testament and showing how the, the, the Exodus or the Passover or any number of other uh, stories and people in the Old Testament were pointing toward him, were types of him, pictures of him, foreshadowings of him. But what they knew was that when they heard him teach, they would hear someone teach the Old Testament like no one they had ever heard before. So they were especially eager to hear what he had to say. And so here they are by the Sea of Galilee, by the Lake of Gennesaret called here. And Jesus gets in one of these two boats by the lake. Fishermen were, were out of them. Maybe they're standing on the shore, kind of getting pushed and jostled a little bit by these people who are getting closer to hear Jesus. They're cleaning their nets. Maybe they're fixing any tears in their nets so that then they can go home and go to bed and then come back and start fishing again the next night. And because, of course, he didn't have a microphone or a speaker system or anything, he wanted to be able to be where the most people could hear him. So he gets in this boat and he sits down. And Simon, who we read about in the previous passage, Simon's mother-in-law had been sick with the fever. He asked Simon to put him out a little bit from the land. And then he sat down and taught. But I think as we pause here just for a moment to think about this, this scene that we're kind of picturing in our minds, I think we do need to just pause and think about the eagerness with which these people were listening to Jesus, particularly the eagerness with which they were listening to the word of God. And I just want, again, wow, a pastor talking about reading the Bible. What a surprise. But I think we need to talk about reading the Bible. I think we need to talk about, do we ever put ourselves in that posture of just wanting to lean into the passage and squeeze as much juice out of it as we can and enjoy it as much as we can and learn as much as we can and take notes and mark our Bibles and, and keep record of what we're learning and check for cross-references and maybe pull off a book or a study Bible or something else from our shelves and see what else can I learn about this passage because I want to follow Jesus that much. And I would just ask if Jesus had been walking across, you know, across the shore and you were there, would you have pressed in to hear everything you possibly could that he would say. And most of us would probably say, of course, I would want to hear everything he had to say. And here we have 
everything we need to hear for life and godliness in our hands. And what we would say is if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we have a copy of the Bible for you because we think it's that important. We want you to have God's Word and we want you to lean into it. And so we would just urge you to, you know, even if it's just getting an audio Bible that you can listen to while you drive, while you sit in traffic or ride the train, listen to the Bible, memorize the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, read the Bible, set aside time on the weekends or you would say, you know, Saturdays from 8 till 11, I'm not going to schedule anything. And as much of that time as I possibly can, I'm just going to sit down with my Bible and I'm just going to block out all the other distractions of life. And so give yourself to the same effort that these people had made to hear the word of God. You won't regret it. It's the best investment of your life you could make, hearing the word of God. And we can do that just by reading the word of God ourselves. Verses 4 through 7 describe Jesus commanding Peter to fish. He finishes speaking, we read in verse 4, and he tells Peter to put out into the deep. Go out further into the lake where it's deeper, where there's more fish, and put your nets down out there. So he's commanding Peter to fish, and verses 4 through 7 describe what happens when Peter and these other fishermen do that. And you, know, you might ask, how did Jesus know that there were fish there to be caught? He's not a fisherman. Even if he were, he can't tell where the fish are in a particular lake at a particular time. And what I would say is, again, he's ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that going back through chapter 3, the Holy Spirit descending on him at his baptism and going out in the power of the Spirit into the wilderness and so forth. And so I think what we have here is Jesus as fully human is being empowered by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, to know where these fish are and telling these fishermen how to do their job. And they probably are a little confused like this. Like, Jesus, you are a carpenter. This is slightly different. You don't have the experience that we have. We do this day in and day out. But okay, you tell us to do this. You've kind of done some cool things in our lives recently. Peter, in his mind, thinking just recently, maybe a couple weeks before this, or a couple months before this, or even a couple days before this, saw his own mother-in-law stand up and start eagerly serving after she had been nearly dead, laying on the floor of her home. And so Peter says, okay, you know, master, a term of respect here, he says in verse 5, we've toiled all night, we took nothing, but at your word, because you say to do this, because you've proven yourself to be amazing recently in our hearing and in our seeing, we'll go ahead and do this. And so it says that they... At your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, verse 6, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. We don't know how many fish that equals out to. One of my brothers-in-law, each summer, he lives in Utah. He and my sister live in Utah with their two small children. And every summer, they go to Alaska. That's where he grew up. And they go, and he catches fish for a living all summer because it's amazing fishing and he can make a lot more money catching fish in Alaska than he can building homes in Utah during the summer, even though you can make good money that way too. So he is, this is his way of providing for his family. And so they go out to Alaska. And so I asked him, you know, about how many fish would it take for your boat to sink? And from his estimate, they're probably using about the same kind of boat, same size of boat as Jesus and the, and the disciples would have been in here. And so he basically said that you've probably got about uh, you know, 2,000 fish or so, if they're all about four or five pounds, somewhere in that range. You have to average it out. 
taking into account aluminum boats versus wood boats and these kinds of factors. But he said at some points, their boats do get so weighed down by fish that if, there's, if it's a wavy day, you're going to really be putting yourself in some danger because the waves will come crashing over the boat then. And so there's you know, some questions here about exactly how many fish, but you're probably dealing with 10,000 pounds of fish in each of these boats if they're both sinking. That's amazing. This is the best catch of these guys' lives and they're professional fishermen. And so, I mean, this is their equivalent of hitting a Grand Slam in the World Series. Like, this is the best day of their lives as far as fishing could go. Their boats were so filled that they began to sink. And sometimes we may doubt God's power to intervene in our lives. Maybe these guys had just had another exhausting day. Maybe, maybe the day before this, they hadn't caught anything either. And they think, what are we doing wrong? I mean, we're going out at the right time of day. We're using the right kinds of nets. We know this lake backwards and forwards. We know where the fish typically are at different times of the day. And we're getting nothing. And maybe they're starting to doubt. Is this really how I want to be using my life? We need to remember that not only can God help us in those times of questioning in our lives as well, He is intent on helping us. He loves to minister grace to you. He does this in a variety of ways, of course. But, you know, sometimes, for instance, I can be discouraged at how few people, it seems, are responding to gospel invitations and turning in faith to Christ, repenting of their sin and following hard after Him. Maybe you're discouraged in the same way. But we do need to remember, again, as, as you often are probably aware, God works at a different speed than we do. God works in different ways than we might expect. And He is working in invisible ways. And this isn't the only place God is working. There are, entire, there are churches that are growing rapidly because sinners are coming in faith to Christ. There are entire countries where people are hearing the Word of God and responding because it's such refreshing news when they're living in the shackles of darkness their entire lives and now they hear that there is life and light in a man named Jesus. God is working all over the world. And so we shouldn't be discouraged when we aren't seeing the kinds of gospel fruit that we would love to be seeing ourselves. But perhaps your discouragement in other ways. Maybe you have other messes in your life and you're wishing that God would intervene in some way. And this passage again calls us to remember that Jesus is at work. God is powerfully at work on your behalf. He is working to encourage you. And even the hard days are part of his plan for your life. And so perhaps we have friends here today who, maybe when you read this, it sounds like a fairy tale. sounds like you're reading Jack and the Beanstalk or Cinderella or some kind of other unlikely story. Say, I just don't know that this person, Jesus, is who deserves my worship, that there's anything about him that makes me inclined to follow after him. And so perhaps uh, this, this passage sounds like a fairy tale to you, and we would just ask you to step back and, and again, maybe read a broader passage, a broader portion of God's word, and, and realize that this passage is not a fairy tale, and it's actually telling the truth. It's, the Bible is the story of reality. God himself is reality, and this book is telling us what is true and what is real. This is far more real than what you see on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. This is telling the truth. And so there are millions of people who believe that Jesus is a powerful man, that he can do amazing things. But when it comes to this issue of, well, did he really walk out of the grave? Can somebody really come back to life? And that really is the decisive question. And so if that's where you're stuck, 
We would love for you to ask us questions about that and probe into that a little bit and see if we can help explain who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus was not some Mother Teresa who came just to be compassionate. He was the picture of compassion. But he's far more than that. And it's far more important for us to believe that, that he is not just this compassionate person, but he actually is God himself who truly can take death and create life. And he did that in our hearts for those of us who have put our hope in Christ. And we pray that he will do the same for you as well, give you eternal life through his shed blood and your faith in him. Verses 8 through 11 then tell us Peter's response, right? So we have the scene in verses 1 through 3. They're on this boat on the Sea of Galilee. Verses 4 through 7 is Jesus finishing teaching and telling them to go fish, which doesn't really make sense to do in the middle of the day, but they do it anyway. And we hear of this great catch of fish. And now reading again in verses 8 through 11, we see Peter's response to the miracle. Look at verse 8. What does Peter do when he sees their fish catch, their catch of fish being better than ever before, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, maybe he was doubting. Uh, Yeah, Jesus, you were amazing back in my mother-in-law's house. You're not a fisherman. You can't just create fish out of nothing here, which he didn't do, but, you know, he, he gathered them together in that part of the sea. But he's, perhaps he's falling down because he's seen, I'm doubting you again. I already have snuck back into these ways of thinking you can't be as good as I think you actually are, you know. But when he falls down at Jesus' knees, this is an act of humility and reverence and seeing his own unworthiness to be in the presence of God, which is what he's realizing he's doing. This is similar to Job's response in Job 42 when God shuts his mouth by saying, Were you there when I created the stars, when I created the great beasts in the sea and on the earth? And Job puts his hand over his mouth and says, I am unclean, essentially is what he says there. It's similar to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he catches a vision of the glory of God and he covers his mouth and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm not worthy to be in the presence of God. This is what Peter is doing here. I'm not worthy to be around you. And he calls him Lord here at the end of verse 8. And it's unclear yet whether he realizes who he's dealing with, that this truly is God in the flesh. But he is at least acknowledging that he recognizes Jesus is empowered by God and sent by God. And he says in verse 9 that that all who were with him were astonished. So we don't know how many people that were, probably three to four people in each boat. Again, just talking to my brother-in-law and what you need to be able to operate this kind of fishing venture. Probably just a handful of people in each boat, but all of them are astonished. And we've seen that word several times. We saw it back in Luke 2 when uh, Jesus is teaching. As a 12-year-old boy, he's asking very insightful questions and making beautiful observations of the text as a 12-year-old in the temple. And people were astonished. That same word was used there. We saw the same in Luke 4.32 when he's teaching in the synagogue. The people were astonished that he was teaching with such authority. To be astonished means, again, to kind of put your hand over your mouth like, I can't believe what I just saw. And maybe you can picture something that you've seen in your life that just blew your socks off. Not literally, but maybe close. And you just thought, I can't believe that just happened or I can't believe what I just saw. 
I remember one time a few years ago, I read a book to my boys about uh, World War II and a man named Adolf Eichmann, who was a Nazi leader, and how uh, a group of spies captured him and brought him to justice. And uh, as I read that story to them, shortly after that, we were at Aldi, and we saw a man walking around Aldi wearing a World War II veteran hat. And I just kind of brought my boys over, and I didn't want to you know, draw attention to it, but I said, boys, look, he's, he fought for our country in World War II. And one of them, I can't remember who, put his hand over his mouth and said, he helped capture Adolf Eichmann. I was kind of like, well, maybe not exactly that part of World War II, but yeah, that same idea. But they just couldn't believe, like, that old man, I think he may have even been on a walker and, you know, kind of hunched over, he helped our country in that war. And they were just astonished at the beauty of that, at the sacrifice involved in that. And that's what these people were doing. They were astonished. They put their hands over their mouth. They said, we are not worthy to be in this man's presence. But in verse 10, while these men are falling all over themselves in humility and embarrassment and shock, you see that, that Jesus says, do not be afraid. And again, this is not the first time we see this in Luke. Where else have we seen it? Well, you saw in chapter 1, verse 13, the angel said this to Zechariah. Don't be afraid. I know you don't see an angel in the temple every single day, but don't be afraid. And then the angel said the same thing to Mary in uh, chapter 1, verse 30. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, the angels said this to the shepherds. Do not be afraid. Today, amazing things are happening. Unto you is born a child today. Why should they not be afraid? Why should these fishermen not be afraid in this scenario? They thought they were in danger by being in his presence, that there was you know, like an aura around him. But he's saying, don't be afraid because good things are happening. This isn't a scary thing. This is a good thing. And he goes on to say, you will be, from now on, you will be catching men. He says this to Simon particularly. James and John, uh, yeah, James and John are nearby as well. Sons of Zebedee, as you see in verse 10. They follow Christ as his disciples as well. But from now on, you will be catching men. For the rest of your life, your mission won't be catching stinky, nasty fish. Your mission will be catching stinky, nasty men, actually. People, people who reject God and his ways in their lives. Your mission is so much bigger and better now. And the rest of the New Testament, particularly the Acts of the Apostles and then the letters that they wrote, throughout the rest of the New Testament, show what it looked like for these men to follow hard after him and to preach the gospel everywhere they went and do amazing things in his power. And when we are rescued by God's grace and we have come to a point of repentance over our sins, we are then included in God's mission as well to call other people to respond to his grace. And so what that means is that your salvation is not just for your benefit. Sometimes we present the gospel to people as if Getting saved is really a man-centered activity. Like, this is what's best for you. Yes, it is, obviously. This is why we tell people with such compassion and energy that Jesus is their Savior, can be their Savior, if they trust in Him alone. But when we leave it there, it sounds like this is kind of a man-centered perspective. Like, this is what's good for you, but it doesn't really matter for anybody else. No, it matters for other people. When you get saved, then you're part of God's team of ambassadors to go and spread the good news to other people as well. So this passage is clear that our salvation is for God's glory and for the good of other people. 
So we want to ask very practically, what does it look like to participate in catching men for God's kingdom, for salvation? Let me just give you six very practical ways to participate in catching men and in this this mission that Jesus has called us to. And the first is simply to be around unbelievers. If you're going to be in a monastery, you're not going to have any kind of interaction with the outside unclean people, those nasty people that we're trying to win for Christ. If you're going to cloister yourself away and just say, no, I'm just going to hang out with people who are most like me, you're not going to have any opportunity to share the gospel with other people. So be around unbelievers. And maybe that's going to mean joining the chess club or hanging out, you know, instead of just reading at home, go read at a Panera or a Starbucks or someplace like that so that you can be around people and have conversations with people. Let me just tell you, I hadn't even thought about mentioning this, but uh, back in the spring, I was studying at a Panera one day, and this was when everything was on Zoom still at that point. Maybe So maybe it was last fall, but at that point, Panera wasn't open. So let's go with sometime January, February. And there was a, a girl studying for a test at the table across the aisle from me, and another college-age girl walked up to her, and she had a business card printed out. She said, hey, my name's whatever. I go to whatever church, and she mentioned... She said, I just want to include you. We have a, a college-age Bible study on Thursday nights or whatever day of the week it was that day. I was going to see if you wanted to join. If so, here's the link. You just you know, type this link in and you can join us for our Bible study. And they just kind of had this quick conversation. It was obvious. She just saw an opportunity. Hey, there's another college student just like me. Who knows where they go, whether it be you know, College of page or something. But she obviously had eyes open to seeing where can I engage people. And she had come prepared, having the Zoom link there and the password, and all that, so that this lady could have the Bible study with her. And I was just so grateful to see this, this young girl taking an opportunity for the gospel to that, to that other student. So be around unbelievers so that you have these opportunities. Secondly, get to know them and love them, which often means listening to them. It often means letting them tell their story rather than you telling them your story. So know them and love them. Third, be patient and earn their trust. You're not going to see conversions every time you start opening your mouth about who Jesus is. So be patient. Again, don't despise the day of small things. Maybe the day of small things is giving a pan of cookies to your neighbor and then doing it again a couple months later and showing them that you're for them, that you are on their side, that you're available anytime you can help them. Ask them good questions. Find out what their career is and what makes them tick so that You have inroads into their lives and you know what their lives are characterized by. Fifth, know the gospel backwards and forwards so that you can get from any point of the gospel story of the message of the Bible to another point. And you can connect the dots for these people from wherever the conversation goes. And then sixth, remember, saving people is not your job. We pray for conversions, but we don't arm wrestle people into getting saved. You are not a commission-based salesman. If somebody walks out without buying your mattress, it's okay. If someone walks out without converting right in front of you, right there, it's okay. The truth you gave them, the, the winsomeness with which you spoke, the beautiful way you, per, you sought to be persuasive instead of the ugly way, all of that makes a difference long after they've left. And you don't know where their mind's going to go about that conversation later on, whether they'll read that Two Ways to Live tract or that Bible or whatever else you give them, some other time maybe they'll read it. 
You don't know if maybe they'll interact with somebody else the next day who also goes to our church or who goes to another healthy church and they'll hear the gospel another way and seeds will be planted this way and that way and watered this way and that way and eventually God will give the increase. And so trust God to do that. But in all of that, what we're trying to remember is that God has called us to participate in this mission of catching men. That this is what God calls people to do. Verse 11 concludes this story by telling that they left everything. They quickly got their boats to land and they left everything and they followed him. They became disciples, in other words. A disciple is a learner, is a listener, is a follower. They went after him. And what was the deciding factor in making this decision for them? Probably their recognition that this person in their midst is obviously sent by God. He is the Lord himself. And some of you might say, well, I'm willing to follow Jesus, but I don't know about this whole deal of prioritizing my whole life around him. I'm willing to go to church most weekends, but arranging my whole weekend schedule every weekend of the month, I just don't know that I can do that. And Maybe that's what it looks like to follow Christ in your life as being willing to set aside other priorities. Maybe others would say, well, sure, of course I'll be at church, but tuh, giving money to a church? Why would I do that? There are so many other worthy causes to give my money to. Following Jesus means being willing to use your life and your gifts and your time and your money for God's glory, for God's mission, even if it doesn't make much sense in an earthly economy. In Peter's case, along with these other disciples, it didn't make much sense to bring those nets loaded down with fish back to the shore and then leave them there, flopping around on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It would have made a bunch more sense to say, hey, let's do it again tomorrow. I mean, look at the amount of money we're going to make when we take all these fish to the markets today. But they recognize that following Jesus is of surpassing value, like we read in Philippians 3 today. It is far better to leave behind the things that this world would say, this is what's valuable, and follow Christ. Luke writes later in his gospel, that we'll come to it later on, if a person gains the world but forfeits his own soul, you've lost everything. Maybe you had all the plaques. Maybe you will die like Tom Brady under a wall of eight Super Bowl rings or whatever number he has. It's ridiculous. But you know what? When he dies, what are those worth to him? Nothing. Maybe you'll have all the plaques and all the certificates, but you're still going to die. And this passage urges you to look beyond what is of surpassing value, not just what's valuable, what is of surpassing value, incomparable value, and it's being part of God's kingdom and calling people to participate in his mission. This passage that he gathers, tells us that he gathers sinners, that he catches a great amount of fish, reminds us of passages like Isaiah 40, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, obviously using a different metaphor here, but just saying he will continue to bring people into his kingdom. Isaiah 56, 8 says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That's what he's doing now. He's gathering people into his flock, into his pasture. And all of these passages remind us of Genesis 12, 
where the Lord told Abraham that through him the Lord would bless all nations. And then in Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Connecting Genesis 12 with Matthew 28, saying our goal of getting the gospel to all people is part of God making his name famous and fulfilling his promise to bring blessing to all the nations. And he uses us as the church, as part of the process of bringing in the nets full of fish into his kingdom. And once the Lord has saved us by his grace, his mission becomes our mission. What is of great value to him becomes of great value to us. And this new vocation or venture just infuses our lives with eternal significance, so much greater than those plaques we put on our walls and eventually die under. And so if you are a Christian today, praise God and seriously take a moment to praise God for gathering you into his net, for pulling you into his kingdom. And now follow him with all that you are and all that you have and call others to do the same. And if you're not a Christian, again, can we just take a moment to thank you for being here. And we at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church love you and delight to serve you in any way we can. And we'd love to get to know you more after the service. But we want to urge you to turn in faith to this one who calls you into his glorious kingdom. This process of learning of him. But that all begins by putting your hope in him. By saying, I can't save myself by doing good, by being here or any other church on Sundays. I can't give enough money. I can't do enough for the poor. I can't do anything to justify myself, to make God love me more. We put our hope in him. We put our hope in Christ and follow his ways. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we stand in awe of saving grace, of the fact that you have gathered us together as your people. We have all lived lives of rebellion, of sin, of self-serving pleasure, and you did not refuse us because of that. Rather, you pursued us because of that, and we give you great praise and admiration, truly. We stand with our hands over our mouths and say, what astonishing grace. Thank you for Christ and for the privilege of serving in his mission. And may you make our church a beacon of hope to the people in this community and in our lives. And may you give us grace to follow you faithfully as your disciples. In Christ's name, amen.